everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Alison Grunendike. What's better than that? Every Wednesday night. I love how Nikki says that. So fun. Hey, welcome. Again, I'm Allison, if you don't know me, one of the lead pastors here, and I have been away on a sabbatical, and it just feels really good to be back. I really missed you guys. I really, really missed you. So, um, just glad you're here. We got to watch a more complete version of, of that video at the national conference, And I'm just really thrilled that we already had it in the works to run Alpha as a church coming up this fall. Um, Really, this is what we're on mission to do, right? And so many of us get stuck because we don't prioritize it in our calendars. And I just love that we're going to have something every week to be leaning into this for. And you might be sitting here thinking, like, if Alpha is geared toward people who are new to faith, why would we be taking the whole church through it, right? I'm looking around, seeing many of your faces, knowing that you're seasoned um, in walking with Jesus. So why are we taking the whole church through it? Um, And really, I would just say you never outgrow the fundamentals. You never outgrow the basics of faith. And what I've found is um, I can learn the same lesson on the surface level, and God will recycle those lessons deeper and deeper and deeper into my soul. And he, I just trust that he's going to do that with our time together in Alpha. But probably my favorite thing that I'm excited for our church to be able to do is learn to listen deeply to people and learn to listen deeply to people who have different ideas about God and faith and religion and the meaning of life than you do. That's really what you're going to encounter as you bring people who are exploring what life with Jesus could mean. Um, I remember the first time Amos and I ran this, we had a guy that was reading tarot cards. We had uh, another guy who could see auras, and he, the first night he came into our place, he said, oh, you're really sparkly to Amos. And then he said, and your wife is shiny. And I was like, what's the difference? Like, I don't really know. (laughs) What does this even mean? And (laughs) what's happening here? Um, But we stayed curious with him, right? And we listened to his story. And we, we got to know, why is that important to you in your life? And would you consider that some of the things we're going to talk about are true. Let's just try them on as if they were true. Can we get into that posture and have a, a dialogue? So um, I just cannot wait to do this with you guys. It's going to be super fun. We are going to have a text message invite that we're going to send out that you can then forward to your friends. So that's going to be a really easy way. Maybe you haven't worked yourself up to the conversation yet, but you could text your friend and say, hey, we have this thing going on at our church. Do you want to come check it out? Um, so... Get ready for that. It's going to be super exciting. The other thing that I get to do this morning is to kick off our new series called God on Mute. How many of you have read it, this book? Fantastic. Okay, how many have started? Started? Okay, yeah. Okay. How many want to read it now that I'm showing you? Yeah, that's the right answer. You do, you do. Okay, so guys, this book I have read it twice now. I think it deserves to be read over and over and over. I really do. 
it is so deeply impactful. And I just want you to be able to engage well with this. We're going to be talking about it in our life groups. Um, I want to go on a journey together as a church. Um, and for me, I think this is actually one of the most hope-filled books that I've ever read. And it probably sounds counterintuitive because it's a book all about when God is silent, when God doesn't speak, or when God's answer is no, when we desperately need a yes. It's what happens with our unanswered prayers, and that's what we get to explore. Um, and I think the reason this has stood out to me as so helpful is that um, the key for me to understand unanswered prayer really lies in Holy Saturday. And it's just not a day that we talk about a lot as a church. We're, we're good at Good Friday, um, Jesus dying, and then we're good at Easter. But we don't really sit in that Holy Saturday space where God is actually dead. Jesus is actually dead. And the disciples are confused and disoriented and shocked. And these are the questions that we all as followers of Jesus and certainly the watching world is wondering, how do I make sense of this? And this book has really um, helped me, I think, to make sense of the things that don't make sense. Um, and so I, I want us to really dig into this today because I know you. I know your stories. You know, and right before I went on sabbatical, I had this moment where I was worshiping in the back and I was looking out at all of you. And I just was overwhelmed with the weight of all the pain that was represented in the room. There's so much strength here, there's so much beauty here, but there's pain too. And I know there's still cancer in some of your bodies, right? I know that spouses and friends and children have been taken too soon from us. I know there are relationships that are breaking down and feel like they're beyond repair. Kids or friends you're estranged from. And then beyond those big, heavy hitter pains of life, right, I know that there's just dreams that you have that aren't coming true. I know there's plans that you've made that aren't working out no matter what you do. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have a lingering question out there for God. And so that's what I want us to really um, hold together before Jesus today. So some of the best language that we can find about how to um, carry our sorrow before God is found in the Psalms. And so I would love for you to stand with me just to honor God as we read um, his word. We're going to be in Psalm 22. That should be on page 571 of the Jesus-centered Bible. If you don't have one, they're in the back there. It's a long psalm, so I think I'm just going to read excerpts of it for you here today. So it starts off, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you, and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. 
but I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. So do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near, and no one else can help me. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. And it goes on to explain all the other physical symptoms and emotional pain that that the psalmist is is writing about. Verse 19, O Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Down in verse 25, I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. And the whole earth will acknowledge that the Lord, acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for his royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. And it ends with a statement that in the NIV is something like it has all been finished or it's all accomplished. And here it says, his righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. You can have a seat. So Jesus had these same questions these same emotions, these same uh, bones to pick, you could say, with God. And we can fast forward to his time on the cross where we can recognize in Psalm 22 that he's quoting that, right? He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And then just before he takes his final breath, he says, it is finished. And it's not recorded in the death accounts of Jesus, but it's likely that he would have been bringing to mind and recalling the entirety of Psalm 22 as he is hanging there. Using the scriptures to both lament his deep anguish, his deep sorrow, his deep pain, and declare the victory that God is and will continue to bring. And we have an invitation today to do that together in the midst of our unanswered prayers. And I will probably say a lot of hard and unpopular things this morning, Uh, so we'll just jump in and say the first thing is, is that this is really hard because we're not good at suffering. If I think about how all the things I've learned in my life, like no one taught me how to suffer. No one taught me how to suffer well. 
right? And even we are vineyard people. We believe that we live in this, um, the tension of the now and the not yet. And we know we're not all the way in, in the not yet yet. <laughs> and so you would think we could hold the silence better, but it is so, so hard. The not knowing, the ambiguity, it just gets to be too much for us. And so we try to reconcile uh, our reality by numbing, by distracting ourselves, uh, by just going into denial and basically rejecting the parts of our story that are just too painful, just too hard. Like, that's not a good part. It doesn't feel good to me to know that about myself, so I'm done with that. Guys, life is hard, right? And our culture spends so much time and money and energy trying to live as if that was untrue. That is what is happening around you. All the tabloids, the news, the grocery stores, the malls, the media, Facebook, everybody is trying to live as if this isn't true. And we, we actually think if we could just acquire enough wealth or enough popularity or just somehow secure an easy life that we would be satisfied with that. And I just love that Pete, in this book, talks about three main categories for how we can understand our unanswered prayer. And I don't have time to get into it today. We're kind of doing the like conclusion first, and then you'll get parts two and three from Amos. So come back next week and the following week, because he's going to dive into all those reasons why God doesn't answer. Um, but he, he has three categories, and he says it's God's world, God's will, and God's wars. And, and most of what we understand or don't understand about life can fit nicely into those categories. And so I think, you know, for me, of those three, it's a bit easier for me to understand God's world. Like, I get that God wouldn't contradict the laws of the universe to answer my prayer, right? Like, he uses the example of if I pray that a a brick isn't going to hit my toe if I drop it. He's probably not going to answer that prayer because God created gravity to work that way, right? Um, but we'll get into that. There's, there's really some fascinating aspects of God's world and why our prayers don't seem to be answered like we want. And then on the other side of it, it's, even though I don't like this reality, I can lean into God's wars, meaning there actually is an enemy that opposes the work of Jesus the coming of his kingdom to create good and beautiful things in the world. And so we are in a war with evil, and that's why we don't see everything answered on this side of heaven. So those things make a little more sense to me. They're a little easier for me to dive into. But the one that is so challenging that I wrestle with is God's will. And that's the one I'm going to kind of camp out on the rest of today and dive in here for us. So... Surrendering to God's will. Well, first of all, let's just name that it's really hard to figure out what it is sometimes, right? We can pray and we can think we hear and we can test and we can be in community, but it's, he's mysterious on some level. We don't know in full. But this journey of surrendering to God's will, and I would even say probably just surrendering to God's love, that's that's how I would summarize the whole of what the Christian journey is. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to surrender to a loving God. 
and place our hands and our lives and our trust in him and see him do what he's going to do. And again, this is a really hard idea because especially in, in culture right now, the idea that God would say no is really unpopular. Right? I, I have sat with many, many people who've decided against faith in God simply because they can't make space for a God that would disagree with them. And that's a hard journey to go on. And I get it. Like, I like praying about and keeping my own plans. You guys too? Right? Like, like it doesn't feel good when God disagrees with me. There's really no magic bullet to get that pain to go away. When I say, this is what I want, and he says, no. No, Allison. But I've learned over the years that if I clutch too tightly to my plans, I don't really have any space in my hands to hold his. It, it's just true. And if they're going to be competing, I want so badly to hang on to, to God's plans for me because I trust that they're better than mine. But that's kind of the question this book is tackling. Like, How do we say yes to God's no? How do we say yes to his silence? Those, just those times when God doesn't speak anything back. And I think we find out how we handle those things when life is falling apart, quite honestly, right? When we have those desperate moments, that's when we can learn to surrender to God's will. And I will say, as a mom, I have a lot more desperate moments now in my life. Um, yes, thank you. Some of you can relate, right? And I, don't want, I imagine it doesn't necessarily get easier as they grow up. It's just new and different challenges and new and different things to surrender to Jesus for your kids, right? Um, but in the book, Pete talks about, um, and again, if you haven't read his, his story, his book, you've got to do it. It's fantastic. His wife is living with um, a chronic illness that's super debilitating, and he shares about how she was in the hospital having just been diagnosed with this brain tumor, and his baby was home, and he was the primary caregiver, and the baby gets chicken pox. And he says, I, I sm you know, smeared all the calamine lotion on the baby I could. I was giving him baths, but there was just nothing to do. This baby was miserable and in pain. And he said, all I could do was just kind of pace up and down the halls of our house and try to tell my son, like, it's going to be okay. And I could just so relate. You know, I've had those sleepless nights with both my girls, crying, weeping, begging Jesus, would you just come, please do something about this? And I even remember saying, like, to Isla and Aviva, like, I would take this away from you if I could. Right? That's, that's the heart of a parent. Like, I would take this away from you if I could. But here's the kicker. The baby doesn't understand, right? You're, you're desperate for them to know that it's going to be okay in the end, but they don't understand. All the child can do is eventually relax into the comfort of their dad's arms. And that's us sometimes with our unanswered prayer. Right? The, the surrender <laughs> comes through the pain and through the fight. And that's where I find a lot of comfort because me saying, I would take this pain for you, little sweet baby, who's probably crying back there right now, that's probably my little one. Um, but that's Jesus. 
Jesus actually did take it all for us into his body so that the pain that you and I experience today is just temporary and not eternal. But even Jesus had his own wrestling to do with God. And that's what we find um, in his journey to the cross in Gethsemane. So if you want to turn with me, you can go to Matthew 26. We're just going to read a little bit about his time in the garden. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. So stay here and keep watch with me. And he went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done and not mine. Hmm. This is how Pete puts it in the book his chapter called A Darker Trust. The power to choose God's will instead of one's own personal preferences is, according to scripture, the defining human opportunity. In the Garden of Eden, our ancestors first prayed the tragic prayer that we have all been praying ever since. They prayed, not your will, God. They prayed this greedily, eyeing the fruit of knowledge and power. Not your will, but our will be done. And in that one cataclysmic moment of decision, lust and craving corrupted the human psyche, passing from heart to heart through the placenta from one generation to the next. And so in another garden, another Adam must make another choice that will reverse the one made at the dawn of human history. Every human instinct of survival cries out against what Jesus knows he must do. Every rational argument insists on self-preservation. And subtler voices too. The promise that a single prayer could even now summon more than 12 legions of angels to his side. And that's Greg referring to the time where Jesus is being tempted in the desert by Satan. And he says, call these angels and they can save you, right? It was a dark prospect of becoming a sin offering. And the most terrifying prospect of all was separation from God. No wonder Jesus cries, Father, take this cup from me. Surely on hearing the cry, there are tears in the Father's eyes. And his hand moves immediately to do just that. Yet, there's that word yet, hangs on yet. In that single word from Jesus, I imagine traffic screaming to a halt and birds falling from the sky. The Father's hand pauses by the cup, heaven falls silent in suspense, hell jeers, 
drooling with lust for blood and power, too stupid to understand its own undoing. Yet not my will. And perhaps the screams of delight in hell were so loud when they heard these four words from the lips of the one whose will had tormented them for so long that they had never even heard the final five words. Your will be done. So Jesus is our model. Jesus is the one to look to. We can look, um, yes, to the scriptures, yes, to the Holy Spirit. But for me, I'm looking at Jesus because he's my model for how to live well and how to die well. And part of how we can do that is to try to find some purpose in our suffering, right? If you read um, all the stories of these giants of faith who have suffered deeply, there are many, many, many of them, right? They all have come to a point where they can find a deeper purpose in their pain. And I know we've referenced Viktor Frankl here before on a Sunday, but you know he endured and survived the Holocaust. And he, prior to going into the concentration camps, was um, a psychiatrist. And he set up uh, counseling clinics for teens who were struggling with mental illness. He had done all this fantastic work on dealing with the pain of life. And then he went in to these concentration camps. He lost both of his parents, his brother and his wife. And he survived. And he came out on the other side of this saying. And I, I will tell you, too, he was, a, he was friends with Freud. He, like, was buddies. They worked together and stuff. I think he helped him publish one of his papers. Um, but he came out on the other side of the concentration camps and said, it's not like Nietzsche said, where the primary motivator in, in the human soul is power, and it's not like Freud said, where the primary motivation for our souls is pleasure. He said, it is that we find meaning in our existence. It's the desire for meaning and purpose. And he said, that's the key to enduring hell on earth, is to be able to repurpose our pain. And that's just going to take some slugging it out, guys. I don't know... And again, I don't have a magic bullet for you on how long is that going to take before God will repurpose my pain? How long do I have to feel bad? How long do I have to sit with this? It's individual, right? But one thing I want you to know is wrestling with God in unanswered prayers is not losing your faith. It's actually growing it. I feel like this is a word for the kids in the room. As I was preparing, I felt like God said, tell the kids, pay attention now. If you have been checking out and not listening to me, I get it. This is not an easy topic, but pay attention now. Doubt and wrestling with God is a sign of your faith. It's not weakness. I just want to speak that out over our children in particular, right? Because atheists, when they pray and nothing happens, all that does is confirm their own thought that, see, it's all just left to chance anyway. It doesn't really matter. I can speak out into the, to the heavens and nothing's out there to care back for me or do anything about this. But this is the way that we bolster our faith. 
and this is my deepest heart's cry for you guys as a church, is that we learn how to do this. And I was, you know, processing some of my own pain and suffering recently with my spiritual director, and and she asked me this sacred question, and I thought, oh, I've asked this question to people I sit with too, but now I have to answer it for myself. She said, Allison, how does it feel to you to, to know that everything that has come to you, all your pain and suffering, has first passed through the hands of God? How does it feel to know that? And it was just a, a holy moment. God came, I wept, I sat in silence for a long time, and I actually had the physical feeling like God was like digging out a cavern in my body, like a, a big hole in me. And then my spiritual director broke in and said, I have a sense that God is digging something out of you. Like she just named exactly what was happening, and I said, that is what's happening right now. Yeah, that's what's happening. And she said again, what do you think he's doing? said, oh, he said he's depositing deep wisdom in most of you. And so I, I had a chance on my sabbatical to consent again to the reality that God does not cause our hardships. He does not will them. But what he does will is that our pain and suffering is transformed. That's what he's doing. He's going to make something beautiful. You know, all of his promises come true. Some of them are on this side of heaven. Some of them won't be until the kingdom to come. But what I can tell you is the promise that he's giving you that's the most important, that he's most tenaciously committed to, is making you like him. That is what he's doing. And he's always working. I know it sounds crazy, but like God's ultimate purpose in our suffering is joy. And I love thinking about this because, like, I enjoy a crackly fire and getting warm around it, but it's because I know what cold feels like, right? I, I love to just, like, chug a big glass of ice water in the summer after I've exercised or just been outside with my kids. And why does that feel so good to me? It's because I know what it means to be thirsty. Unanswered prayer can feel like a winter season, can't it? But again, we can look at the tree that's been stripped down bare and then the snow comes and falls on it and we know that springtime is coming. It doesn't matter how harsh the winter has been. It doesn't matter if we got tons of snow and it was frigidly cold and our heat stopped working in our house and we just had to slug it out. Springtime always comes. Springtime is guaranteed, and that is the reality of the kingdom. God is making things new, and he's bringing death out of, or life out of death, and he shows us that in his own body. He says in John 12, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. And I was thinking about seeds and how similar to seeds, like Jesus wasn't just lying on the ground. He went into the ground. He was planted in it. And that's the difference between something coming out of the seed or nothing coming out of the seed. That's the difference between life and the plant growing or nothing happening at all. And that's our path too. 
And so when Galatians 2.20 says, my old self has been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. He goes on to say, I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's a surrender to what God is doing in our lives. Can we get to the place where we say, I don't understand it, I don't like it, I want out, I want you to come and fix it right now, Jesus? We can say all those things, we can be really honest about that, but then we can also say, I trust you. Every time suffering comes and touches our lives, it like brings this opportunity to say, am I going to trust? and accept the reality that is in front of me, or am I going to choose unbelief, which is like a rejection of what's happening? So, I want to close here. How do we do this? We have to both lament and celebrate. Lament and celebrate. That's what we saw in Psalm 22. Um, And here's what I just believe so much more now, even on this side of things, of of my sabbatical, my time of wrestling with God. We've got to do this in community. Boy, I missed you guys. I mean, I took one of the most orienting things about my life away for a season, and it was good, and God had purpose for it, but it was hard. But I tell you what, my people who stayed with me in that time, they were helping me to continue to believe my beliefs and doubt my doubts. And I think that's a helpful phrase as we um, just try to engage this work. Believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. The things that you have been doubting when you're in a winter season, when you can't hear God, when you're disoriented, don't invert those and start believing your doubts and then doubting your beliefs. Does that make sense? It's so easy, and that's what Satan wants you to do. He's going to try to flip it on its head, and you need your people to be a prophetic community to you, to look you in the eye and say, I'm not diminishing your pain. That's crappy. What's happening right now is bad. I hear that. I hold that. But they also would say, here's what I believe to be true about your life, Allison. And I had people saying, God has good plans for you. I don't know what he's doing right now, but he's got something good. I'm like, okay. I can stand on that. Going through the motions gets a negative rap, you guys, but sometimes you just have to exercise your spiritual muscle memory and just do the left foot, right foot thing of faith. Just do what you know to be grounded in and hang on to Jesus because at the bottom of the barrel, that's where he is. That is where you, that is where you will land. If you get to the bottom and you follow Jesus, he's going to be right there. I had that experience recently of like just sinking into this moment with God. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.